treasurer. We come now to another of the songs of Jesus, Psalm 23, one of the glorious uh, psalms of Scripture. Before we hear God's word read this morning, let us ask for God's blessing. O triune God, show us yourself. Show us your heart, your beauty, your truth, your glory. Lead us on right paths this morning. For your name's sake, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture reading is Psalm 23. Hear now the word of the Lord from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. This is the word of the Lord. If you uh, went to high school in the mid-1980s like myself, uh, and you went to prom, uh, so there's about a 95% chance that your prom ended with this particular song. I want you to try to guess what it is. I'll give you a hint. It's by Led Zeppelin. Anyone want to take a guess? Come on, Jesse, you know this, right? I know you're not that old, but... Stairway to Heaven. Wait, is that you, Woody? Woody's a Zeppelin fan. All right. Yeah, Stairway to Heaven, that was the song. It was uh, literally the song for one of uh, my high school proms. It's an iconic song, for sure, right? Stairway to Heaven. At every Led Zeppelin concert, the crowd would be crying out for that song. At some point, they wanted to hear that song. And, uh, you know, Robert Plant, the lead singer for Led Zeppelin, got so sick of singing it that he just, he stopped at one point and he said in an interview, I'd break out in highs if I had to sing that song in every show. And you hear that from a lot of bands, you know, when they have a, an incredible and iconic song, a song that's a big hit, and they have to sing it at every show and over and over and over again, it can be so uh, tiring. In a way, Psalm 23 is like the stairway, of, the stairway to heaven of the Bible, right? It's, it really is. It's a song that is so iconic, right? That psalm, it's all over the place. It's on greeting cards. It's on stuff on your wall. We all know that psalm so well. I mean, even atheists, they know, they know this particular psalm if they know nothing else. And that presents a real challenge, a real challenge for the preacher particularly. I mean, what can you say? about this particular psalm that has not already been said by someone somewhere. And then there's that whole thing where it kind of takes on a life of its own, right? Its own meaning, and people have grabbed onto a certain meaning about that, and if you mess with it, you're in big trouble. 
Uh, James Luther Mays, who's an Old Testament scholar, particularly a scholar on the Psalms, he wrote this about the preacher's dilemma related to Psalm 23. He said this, During a long career of speaking and writing about Psalms, I have always before now turned away from it. That is Psalm 23. Any interpretation seems presumptuous. The 23rd is so poetically, is poetically so precious and so owned by all who know it that it ought not to be blurred by the comments and glosses of an interpreter. Yeah, <laughs> preaching on Psalm 23 is like messing with stairway to heaven. And, you know, it's a presumptuous thing to do. What can I say that has not already been said? So we can kind of go home today, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm done. But there is this thing in my contract I'm supposed to do this, so I'm going to go ahead and preach this morning. My, and if you think about it, my whole job is presumptuous, right? I get up here and try to you know, talk about God's Word and explain it. That's a presumptuous thing to do. But I must do it. But I want to do it a little differently uh, this morning. I want to look at this iconic psalm in a little bit of a different way. You can kind of think of it as kind of the acoustic version. <laughs> now, some people don't like acoustic versions, so I might get in trouble. But hey, if you want to hear the traditional thing, I did that last year. I preached on the psalm in the early parts of the pandemic last year. And I preached it in the traditional way. I focused on that kind of imagery of provision, you know, the green pastures and the still waters. I talked about the protection that is in this psalm, about the rod and the staff of the shepherd and that protective role. I talked about the imagery of the promise, right? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all my life long that I'll get safely home. So if you want that, it's out there. It's on the web. You can listen to that. And that's all good and that's all true, but I don't want to sing the same song again. I want to do something a little bit different. And so this morning, I want to look at this psalm in a little bit of a different way. Look at some neglected threads in the fabric of this beautiful psalm with all of its texture and beauty. I want to look at this psalm if it, as if it were a movie. Okay, that's kind of what I want to do. I want to look at it as if it were a movie. And I want to look at some of the overlooked scenes, a little hidden things in the psalm, maybe things you've not focused on before, Easter eggs, whatever you want to call them. That's what I want to do. I want to look at three overlooked scenes in this psalm. That's how we'll structure the outline. Now, before I get into this, I want to acknowledge my reliance on Kenneth Bailey and his wonderful book on Psalm 23, the Good Shepherd, a fantastic book, and the basic conceit of the sermon, the core argument is his, not mine, and I want to give him credit for opening my eyes to it. So, let's do it. We're going to look at this, three overlooked scenes, and what we're going to kind of do is, you know, when people used to watch DVDs, I realize that's kind of becoming old technology, but you know how you used to go to the menu, and there'd be a scene selection, and you get little scenes, and you could take each one, and each one had a title. And that's kind of how I want to do this. Three scenes, three titles. And the first overlooked scene, I would give the title, The Reclamation. The Reclamation. And here's verses uh, 1 and 3, uh, uh, 1 and 2 of the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. That's such calming imagery, right? Uh, that has calmed so many Christians throughout so many years. 
What I'd like to suggest is there's something else going on here in those calming images, something that's right underneath the surface, right underneath kind of the epidermis of the text itself. There's a storm before the calm. You see, something is happening here to David, right? He's going through something here. He's acknowledging in this psalm that he is a sheep that has gone astray. He's like a lost sheep. Something is askew in his life, or it was before God said it right. He acknowledges he's been going in the wrong direction. He's been on wrong paths in his life, that he's been unsatisfied, right? He's filled with wants in his life. He's on wrong paths in his life. If you read between the lines, you see that something has now been set right that was wrong. There was a storm before the calm. He talks about uh, his soul being restored. And that's really a bad translation. We're kind of stuck with it because it's so precious to us. He restores my soul. It sounds like, you know, David went to the spa for a day and got renewed. It isn't like that. It's really, if you were to translate that in most literal way from the Hebrew, if you took that phrase, it would be, he brings me back. Or as John Goldingay puts in his translation, he turns my life back. It's really the idea of being brought back to life when you were dead. To have breath put back into your lungs. It's death to life imagery. David had a storm of the soul. Something was wrong in his life. The image here in this psalm is of a sheep that is lost on the wrong path. And going in the wrong direction. And the shepherd goes out and tracks him down. Reclaims his life. Brings him back to right paths. Brings him back to life. The first overlooked scene of this psalm is really a reclamation project. It's the story of a shepherd bringing back a lost sheep, a lost soul. That's what this psalm is about. Secondly, let's look at overlooked scene number two. We go back to our DVD menu, we select that next scene. And that next scene I would title as the preparation. We had the reclamation, now the preparation. And we see this in verse 5. Listen to this verse. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. What does it mean to prepare a table? Have you ever thought about that? We read that phrase so often, right? We just kind of gloss over it, move past it. What does it mean when it says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies? What does it mean? Well, you think about the options, you know, to prepare a table. It could be um, to build something, right? To build a table. Uh, Ken uh, in our congregation and Ed, they're woodworkers. They build stuff. They build some wonderful tables uh, and desks for the children at School 33 and other places. But it's not that. It's not building or constructing a table. Well, it could be to set the table, right? It could be the idea of setting a table. We have that. But this is in Downton Abbey time, right? This is not about having 15 forks on your table and that kind of stuff. It's not that fancy of a world. The ancient Near East, they didn't have utensils. They uh, ate out of common bowls. You threw a rug on the ground and you got some bowls and you ate together. There wasn't a setting of the table, so it's not that. So what does it mean to prepare a table? Well, in the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East, to prepare a table meant to cook. It meant to prepare 
a meal to do the cooking. Now, here's a part in my sermon where I can get in trouble. This point could get me in trouble in a variety of ways from the theological right and the theological left, and so I want you to listen real careful. Because I don't want to end up on one of those YouTube videos of dumb things pastors say in their sermon. I've tried to stay out of that. I don't want to get uh, canceled. I don't want to be on the idiot list. Um, and it's very easy to get on the idiot list. Uh, this past week, um, Burger King got in trouble, right? They had this advertising. I don't know if you saw this, but their advertising came out and it said, quote, a woman's place is in the kitchen, end quote. And the Twitterverse erupted in rage, as it often does, and people were angry about this. Uh, but, you know, the ad was uh, an effort at some humor with a good point. And the good point was they were promoting women being head chefs in restaurants, promoting women to be in charge of restaurants and things like that throughout the in industry. But people are, you know, we've kind of, we're bereft of a sense of humor, and so they freaked out. So you got to be very careful about what you say. I want to be very careful about what I say. Listen to me carefully. So if preparing a meal, uh, you know, preparing a table is preparing a meal, well, in the Old Testament, in the time when uh, this took place, this psalm, a historical norm, not saying this is a modern norm, preparing a table was a job for women, almost exclusively in the Old uh, Testament. And even in, in the New Testament, we see that. Women prepared meals. If you think about Genesis 18, right? Abraham is visited by those special visitors, and he knows he has to do with hospitality, provide hospitality. There's a huge expectation. So what does he do? He runs into the house, and he tells Sarah basically the recipe. He says to Sarah, make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it, and make cakes. Bake some bread. Because that's what women did in the Old Covenant. They were the bakers of the Bible. Jesus, even in the New Testament, when he talks about the kingdom of God, he says it's like a woman taking yeast and making bread. Women were the bakers of the Bible. That's what the scriptures reveal. Okay, so why are you telling me this, Pastor? What's your, what's your point here? Well, here's where the theological right might get uneasy in this, but... Uh, who is it that prepares table here in the psalm? Who is it that prepares this meal? It's God. The imagery here is of God. God is in the kitchen. God has the apron on, if you will. He is the head chef. He's making the meal. By the way, I make most of the meals in my house, just so everybody knows that. I'm, right now, it's, it's shifted in our lives, but I, I do most of the, the cooking uh, in my house. But this is God doing the cooking. He's in the kitchen. He's the meal preparer. And so what we have here in Psalm 23 is the use of what would be in that culture and in that time female imagery to represent God's work. And that should not surprise us because God is not sexed or gendered like we are. He's not male as I am male. God created us in his image, male and female. He possesses all the range of attributes, and here he represents himself that way. He does it other places in the scripture, right? He's described as a hen gathering chick, chicks, a nursing mother weaning a child, a woman in labor, and here he's a woman in the kitchen, Making a meal, preparing table, and I'll show you why that's important later on. But for now, the second overlooked scene is this. 
This is about preparation. A God who prepares a meal for the reclamation of his lost sheep. A God who is like a good shepherd and like a good woman who prepares this meal for the lost sheep who has come home. That's our second overlooked scene. Okay, scene number three. Scene number three, going back to our menu, and I would title this The Celebration. We've looked at the reclamation, the preparation, thirdly, the celebration, verses five and six. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Now, you might be thinking at this point, well, how is this overlooked? Almost everybody who reads this psalm recognizes that there's a celebration here, right? This is a good moment. There is rejoicing. There is joy. There's cups overflowing. And there's food. And there's, you know, there's no want here at all. How is this an overlooked scene? How is this an Easter egg? We all know there's a celebration. I think the overlooked part is who it is that is being celebrated here. You see, the traditional view is that David is the guest of honor, right? This is all about David. This is a party for David. God invites David into his house. God prepares a meal for David. God anoints David's head with oil. David's cup is overflowing, right? He can't get enough. God does this for David in the presence of all of David's enemies. And given all that, people think, well, this is a celebration of David, right? Well, wrong. <laughs> this isn't really a celebration of David. It's a celebration of God. You know, we tend to take this psalm with such a human-centered interpretation when it's really about the goodness and glory of God. For it is the Lord here. It is the Lord who is the good shepherd. It is the Lord who expends great cost to go and reclaim David. It is the Lord who's in the kitchen preparing the meal for David. This is a feast held in the honor of God. The God who found David when he was lost. The God who reclaimed him and brought him back and put him on paths of righteousness. And what follows is a celebration of that good shepherd of all that he has done in his work of redemption. God is the guest of honor. His goodness, his glory is being celebrated in this psalm. The enemies that are watching are God's enemies. They don't like his work of redemption. They murmur against it, but they can't stop it. They don't think David should be saved, but God saves him and God celebrates him. The celebration is about God, his grace. His goodness. The third overlooked scene of this psalm is about a celebration, a celebration of God's costly redemption and reclamation of his lost sheep. God is the guest of honor at this celebration. Okay, so there you have it. There are, those are our three overlooked scenes. Scene number one is that reclamation project, right? Where God, the shepherd, brings back a lost sheep. Something that was lost is found. A lost sheep is brought back. Scene number two is the preparation using that female imagery. God is the good woman preparing the meal. 
for rejoicing over this lost sheep being found. And thirdly is the celebration that is held, not so much a celebration of David, but a celebration of the one who paid a great cost to bring back the lost sheep as enemies watch and murmur. All right. So what's your point, Pastor? <laughs> You're thinking, okay, that's all nice. I mean, yeah, I've kind of maybe missed some of that imagery there in this historical view of the psalm, but what's the point? Well, here's the point. And this is really uh, Bailey's point in his book. Can you think of anywhere in the New Testament where we see these three themes reprised? These three themes. A reclamation project bringing back a lost sheep. God depicted as a good woman. And a meal celebrating the father's costly reclaiming of his lost son. Anyone? Prodigal son, very good. I was going to do Bueller, but you were so fast. Right. Luke chapter 15, my favorite chapter in the entire Bible, if you're allowed to have a favorite chapter in the Scripture. Luke 15, what's in Luke 15? Three parables. Three parables about something that's lost and is regained and is found. The first parable is about the, when the shepherd, the good shepherd, leaves the 99 to go find the one that has gone astray and reclaimed. The second parable is about a woman in her home, a good woman who looks for the lost coin, also representing the lost God, represented there as a good woman who does not give up seeking the lost. And thirdly, it ends with the greatest of all parables, right? The parable of the prodigal son, where there is a celebratory meal for the reclaiming of a lost son, a meal that is not held because the son is so great. But because the Father's love is so great and the cost of the redemption is so great, it is celebrated. And do you know how that, those parables start, how they're prefaced? They're prefaced this way, Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Looking on at the meal, unhappy, murmuring about what's going on. Murmuring about the glorious love of God. Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is about that. It's about the same thing that Luke 15 is about. It's about the restoration of the lost. Of God's great cost expended to reclaim that what was lost. That's what Psalm 23 is about. It's really about the same thing as what Luke 15 is about. Luke 15 is kind of the Bible's exposition. Jesus' exposition of Psalm 23. And of course, in the fullness of time. It is revealed to us who the great shepherd of Psalm 23 is, this good shepherd, right? Jesus in John 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd. You want to know who that is in Psalm 23? It is me. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Redemption at great cost. 
When Jesus says that, I am the good shepherd, he takes possession of Psalm 23. He owns it and says, it's about me, about what I have done, about what I'm revealing to you in these parables in Luke chapter 15. Psalm 23 is a song about Jesus. And it's a song about us. For we are the lost sheep. We are the sheep who have gone astray. And Psalm 23 is about the good shepherd who finds his lost sheep, welcomes them home, no questions asked, and celebrates. Goes and bakes bread and makes a meal. Celebrates their reclamation. Celebrates his own work of costly redemption. Our God, what this psalm reveals, is that our God is the one who celebrates runaways who come home. That's what this psalm is about. That's really the comfort of this psalm. It's about the reclamation of lost sheep by the good shepherd. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey retells the parable of the prodigal son. He tells it this way. There's a young girl who has a falling out with her parents. She screams at them. She slams the door. She leaves their home and runs away from Traverse City, Michigan. And she ends up in the big city of Detroit. She gets into drugs. She has fun for a while. She prospers even for a time. And then she finds herself on the streets, ill and frightened, selling herself. And she realizes she's lost. She says to herself, God, why did I leave? My dog back home eats better than I do. And then she dials her parents' number. She hangs up twice as she dials it. Doesn't leave a message. And then finally, she has the courage to leave a message. Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. She gets on the bus, and she starts to rehearse her apology. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? The bus stops at the terminal. She gets off the bus. And Yancey describes what happens next. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs, bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and even her grandmother. Taped across the entire wall, the terminal is a banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of cheers and well wishes breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that, no time for apologies. 
You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. That's what Psalm 23 is about. That's who your God is. That's who he has revealed himself to be in Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is all about. Henry Nouwen put it this way. God rejoices not because the problems of the world have been solved, not because all human pain and suffering have come to an end. No, God rejoices because one of his children who was lost has been found. That's who God is. That's who your God is. And that's what this psalm is about. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what path you are on, whether you are running away. I don't know who's chasing you. But I know this. There is a good shepherd. There is a good shepherd. And he's really good at finding the lost. That's the whole reason he came, to seek and to save the lost. He's really good at bringing runaways home. And it's never too late to come home. It's never too late. If there's a chance that someone is watching this somewhere, and you've gone astray, you've left, maybe you've even left this congregation, there's always time to come home with God. He welcomes lost sheep home. It's not too late. It's never too late. As Led Zeppelin puts it in Stairway to Heaven, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. There is. I invite you to do so. Change the road you're on. Come home. Let's pray. O gracious Lord, we rejoice in the good news of Psalm 23. We rejoice that there is a good shepherd. We rejoice with you, Lord, over the lost being found. For that's who we are. Each and every one of us are sheep who have gone astray and have been found by you at great cost. At great cost. And each and every Lord's Day, you invite us into your house. You prepare a table for us. You make great bread, O God, and you make the finest of wines. And you serve them to us in the presence of our enemies. And you tell us that goodness and mercy will follow us our whole lives long. What a glorious God you are. Praise be to you. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for welcoming us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.